0: I'm Melissa Hall from the Southern Foodways Alliance in Oxford, Mississippi, and this is the Eat Kentucky Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Eat Kentucky Podcast, where we celebrate Kentucky, its food, and its culture. This is your host, Alan Cornell. The Southern Foodways Alliance was founded two decades ago by John T. Edge in Oxford, Mississippi, as part of the University of Mississippi's Center for the Study of Southern Culture. Their mission is to document, study, and explore the diverse food cultures of the changing American South. The SFA hosts and sponsors events and seminars, produces documentaries, publishes a regular journal called Gravy, as well as producing a Gravy Podcast. Co-hosting that podcast is Melissa Booth Hall, who serves as Managing Director of the SFA and who originally hails from Middlesbrough, Kentucky. Melissa is a graduate of Center College and the Chase School of Law, but she decided Southern food was a lot more fulfilling. In this episode, Melissa and I discuss the state of restaurants in the South during this pandemic shutdown and how people are coming together to help restaurant workers, including through the Lee Initiative from right here in Kentucky. Melissa discusses her work with the SFA, how she went from Middlesbrough High School to Oxford, Mississippi, and how she honed her kitchen skills by cooking through Southern Living Magazine. Plus, Melissa and I commiserate about the loss of March Madness for Kentuckians, and we have a flashback to 1980's 13th Region High School basketball. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Eat Kentucky podcast and to leave a 5-star rating. Also, you can help support Eat Kentucky by visiting Patreon, dot com slash eatkentucky. Now join me as I talk with Melissa Booth Hall of the Southern Foodways Alliance.
0: <music>
1: Melissa Hall, welcome to Eat Kentucky.
0: Thanks, I'm glad to be here.
1: You are tucked away in Oxford, Mississippi, I assume, right now.
0: Yes, I am uh, coming to you from my office slash yarn room um, oh, here gotcha. in the house. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's a that's a nice combination. Exactly. My office, my office is tucked away in the basement, so that uh, I stay out of everybody's <laughs> way. I think I think lots of people are uh, are getting to know their offices better at home, and if they didn't exactly. have one they're they are throwing up a desk in the yarn room maybe and
0: exactly and they've got exactly. they've got
1: one now so i'm trying to make the best of uh, our social distancing time by talking to great food folks like you especially people who have good kentucky connections so i'm i'm excited to talk to you today
0: excellent i'm i'm excited to to uh to be here
1: so I know that you're there, uh, somewhat at ground zero of Southern food with the Southern Foodways Alliance. What have you been hearing from around the South about, uh, how this, uh, this situation of shutting down all these restaurants and, and, uh, food delivery places, maybe that, uh, how that's having an impact right now.
0: So, um, it, it's really, uh, you know, in this moment where it's hard to talk about economic impact, um, given the, you know, the very real, uh, loss of human life that we're facing. Um, I would say that, you know, for the restaurant industry, for the service industry in general, really for, you know, there's, there's been a lot said about the restaurant in industry, less said about retail. Um, but for both of those industries, what's happening right now is catastrophic. And it is, um, you know, what you are seeing uh, uh, across the country is, and, they, and these are last week's figures. I feel like these are creeping up. Um, Seven million people um, who have lost their jobs through no fault of their own. Um, and, uh, I think the estimates are that number will climb to 11 million. So it's, it's a, you you know, the, the loss of, uh, an entire industry really in the course of four days, um, is a really hard thing to kind of wrap your head around. And, you know, I, I, I think that some of those businesses were positioned in ways to kind of navigate this. Um, If you think about places where um, the model is kind of fast, casual, the, you know, you walk up to a counter and order and carry your food away. um, I think those places probably have the infrastructure to, to stay in business for, you know, at least a little while longer. Um, but for restaurants who transitioned from table service to a takeout only business in the course of, in some cases, like 48 hours, um, you know, that's extraordinary. I mean, you think about any industry, um, making that switch in 48 hours. So it, this is, um, you know, no, no one. I, I, I hate to sound depressing, but you know, no one really knows what the restaurant industry is going to look like on the other side of this, and and really, which owners and are are going to be able to survive this.
1: Right, I I think you're exactly right about that. Uh, I you know I see a lot on social media. That's kind of right now. That's how we keep up with things. And I exactly. Uh, see a lot of, of local restaurateurs and chefs who are, you know, they're out there hustling hard to, to keep things going. And they, they have had to reinvent their business model in a way that makes pickup and delivery work for them, places that, uh, that never had even thought about doing that maybe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there are there you know there there's a number of groups sort of trying to address this. Um, there's the uh, the big sort of pan now pan national uh, organization called the um, uh, Independent Restaurant Coalition, um, mm-hmm. and they can be found at SaveRestaurants.co. They have kind of the most up to date information. And, you know, if you're a person who loves restaurants and, you know, and you want to call uh, a congressperson or a senator or, you know, a a state legislature to advocate on behalf of restaurant workers, um, that's a place that has all the tools. And then there are places like, um, you know, based in Kentucky, the Lee Initiative. Um, which is Ed Lee's um, arm, uh, his sort of philanthropic arm. um, And they have swung into action and are working to uh, feed um, newly um, unemployed restaurant workers in cities across the country. So that's a now national effort that really has strong roots in the state.
1: Yeah, they are. They're I breaking say into the new all the Sorry. time. Right. Yeah, they're they're, <laughs> they're breaking that. into uh, into mm-hmm. new cities all the time, and of course they're they're very active here in Lexington. Uh, Great Bagel here in Lexington yes. is uh, is a is a spot that is distributing. I know here, and uh, mm-hmm. it's it's really extraordinary to see how far their reach has been. And I know it's, it's given a lot of relief to people who need it.
0: Right. And you are, you know, you are a regular, uh, restaurant patron and know this industry, uh, fairly well. Um, probably kind of in the same way I do, which is, you know, as an enthusiastic, um, uh, diner, but you know, one right. thing that people don't really think about is um, the size of restaurant kitchens and one which is you know hint for those of you who don't know they're tiny they're probably in most cases smaller than if not the same size as many home kitchens which for a home cook is like really hard to wrap your head around But, you know, those spaces are set up for a lot of people to work very efficiently in a small footprint. They're set up that way for a reason, because you make money uh, where there are tables and chairs. You don't make money in the kitchen. Sure. But that that reality of tiny spaces and lots of people, you know, I'm not sure there are a number of chefs and restaurant groups across the South who started uh, this process doing some kind of takeout to go on the street, whatever. And it's becoming clear day by day that people working in the kitchen don't feel that they're in a safe environment. So even those operations are now starting, you're starting to see some of those close um, because of that reality, you know, of architecture. So.
1: Right. You've got uh, that. Those people are really frontline people. Uh, I mentioned mentioned to you before we hit record that my daughter, for example, works at Kroger and she's got to go into Kroger every day and deal with a lot of people, not all of whom are necessarily well and you know she's she's in a really a dangerous environment the same goes with with people who are working in kitchens and and trying to hand off food to people who drive up Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean it's 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 a situation where you know those those are vulnerable spots those are weak spots and uh, at, at some point and I'm sure already has happened the things have been spread so it's 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 a challenge and difficult we have to eat we have to function uh and so it's there's that tension there
0: right right and of course
1: we all want to see those places be open when when we can get back out again too
0: exactly um one of uh one of my uh favorite uh local chefs uh has been offering (laughs) um through twitter and facebook uh a service where if you will direct message him and tell him what you have in your pantry, um, he will, um, he will tell you what to make.
1: Oh, nice. Um, which is, I need that.
0: <laughs> exactly. Like all of us need that. Everybody who's ever, you know, at three thirty in the afternoon put, you know, chicken, pasta, maybe a, seven day old red pepper into Google to see what comes up. Um, right, yeah, exactly. really appreciates that. So I,
1: I was going through the f- the freezer in the basement the other day saying what what all is in here? What do we what right. do we have that we can <laughs> right. that we can do something <laughs> with and start start exactly. Googling recipes. Exactly. So uh are you I guess is is SFA Staying active, y'all working from home, or are things sort of in a, a little bit of a dormancy right now? How are, no, how are things going with that? Yeah,
0: so, so yes, we're working from home. Um, the tough part for us is uh, that we, you know, a big part of what we do involves our documentary work. Um, This is, of course, not a time um, where uh, an oral historian can meet face to face with uh, an oral history narrator, Um, nor is it a time where uh, a documentary filmmaker can, um, you know, be in the same room with uh, uh, a film subject. And so uh, for right now. Uh, The focus of our documentarians is really um, you saying the thing about, you know, cleaning out your freezer and kind of assessing what's there. Um, The Southern Foodways Alliance now has over a thousand oral histories and uh, nearly 150 films. So our documentarians right now are figuring out ways to enhance the stuff that we do have, the stories that we already hold. Um, New ways to share those stories and tell those stories, ways to kind of gussy up those stories so that um, as people dig into them, um, uh, they're seeing, you know, the best possible work. Um, Obviously, our event work kind of comes to a little bit of a pause um, because, um, you know, SFA events are... um, are big and crowded and there's lots of, you know, back slapping and neck hugging and close talking and all of those things that we previously have enjoyed about um, public spaces um, that aren't possible right now. The two things though, that we are going to be able to continue to do um, that have been a part of SFA work are our podcast. Um, The next podcast batch will drop in May um and we just uh we just finished a season a couple weeks ago um so our podcast will continue and uh a gravy journal um which is our quarterly journal of uh great uh writing about the south and about southern foodways um that journal will continue to be published sort of as uh, on its normal schedule On top of that, we've started thinking about uh, new ways to communicate with folks. Um, One of those is right now we're offering um, every day at uh, 2 o'clock Eastern, 1 o'clock Central through Facebook Live, a series that we're calling Working Lunch. And what Working Lunch is, is a conversation between our founding director, John T. Edge, and folks in the industry who are kind of grappling with this moment and talking about, uh, about kind of how they in their own um, uh, food world dealt with the shutdown of operations, how they're caring for people who they were forced to lay off um, and kind of what they see as the future. So that. We, we have a batch of those from last week that you can access through our um, Facebook page, and that conversation is ongoing this week. Um, for fun, um, every Friday at 3.30 Central, 4.30 Eastern, um, Jerry and Krista Slater, who have a bar and restaurant in Athens, Georgia called the expat are doing, uh, a series that we call stir crazy with SFA, (laughs) um, where exactly where they Mm -hmm. mix up, uh, a cocktail and a non-alcoholic beverage, um, uh, using inspiration from SFA's cocktail book. Um, so, you know, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're working through sort of how we can quite frankly be a balm in this moment. And a lot of SFA sure. stories are uplifting um and hopeful um even in the reality of the story. Um so, you know, we feel like this is a moment to figure out ways to share that content that we have um in you know in a different way than an in-person event or uh, a new oral history collection
1: right well you you have the good fortune of having that that deep library so it'll be interesting to see what what pops out of there and yeah. of course i will i will also tell people that that you do have that backlog of gravy podcasts which you and uh, John T. Edge uh, co-host together and yes. as soon as they finish listening through the backlog of Kentucky episodes they've missed. They can go listen to those.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I think, you know, Gravy Podcast, especially this this, uh, most recent batch, um, you know, what we try to do through the podcast is to tell um, unexpected stories in unexpected places around the South. So in this last batch, um, one of my personal favorites is uh, a story about... um, the ham bacon and egg show in Wetzel County, West Virginia, which is a, um, it's a thing that happens. It's an event that happens every year. um, And it's a, um, it's an auction of the ham bacon and eggs that Wetzel County, West Virginia, high school students have, uh, you know, they, they each raise a hog or they raise some chickens and then they uh, they slaughter those animals, they butcher those animals, and then they uh, present uh, the, you know, the fruits of their labor for sale at this town auction. And um, it's a uh, it's a surprisingly, um, uplifting and fun story um, that's about community. It's about vocational education. It's it's kind of about all of the things, um, and begins with uh, this very important life lesson from one of the young students, which is: in August, when you pick your pig, don't name it. So <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's right. I can I can see the value. <laughs> Exactly. For that, for that project. That's great. And I, you know, I know that there are some similar programs, especially dealing with hams and so forth in Kentucky. And I, I think those are, uh, those are extremely valuable to, to keep and keep those uh, traditions and, uh, and uh, pass those along to a new generation.
0: Right. And, you know, uh, not to go back to like sort of the depressing news of this moment for the restaurant industry. I mean, but the industries, the ripple effect from the sh- shutdown of the restaurant industry that impacts um, farmers, um, probably that farmer's market in uh, that, you know, happens uh, in Lexington, um, you know, it impacts places like, you know, Nancy Newsom's country ham, out in Princeton, Mm -hmm. Kentucky, um, because, you know, so many of her sales are to restaurants. Um, it's probably having, you know, um, Anson Mills is a longtime supporter of the SFA. Almost all of their products are sold to restaurants, not to individuals. So, you know, when you start thinking about, um, you know, folks in, you know, folks who are raising, um, Uh, heritage breed animals for restaurants folks who are raising heirloom vegetables for restaurants um cheese makers um judy shad just outside of louisville like all of those all of those parts of the restaurant industry that we don't necessarily see or we don't think about as being tied to restaurants all of those industries are um you know, need your help and your attention. If you can give, you know, if, if that's where you can spend your money right now, I'd encourage you to do it.
1: Uh, yeah. Once you start thinking about the tentacles and where mm-hmm. all of those spread to, it, it's really astonishing the impact. It's just, it's just a, a domino effect throughout yep. the, uh, throughout the economy. Yep. While we take a brief break, I wanted to tell you about my day job, and sometimes nights and weekends. I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. When I'm not eating or posting about food, I help people find the home of their dreams in the Lexington area. If you need to buy or sell your home, please email, text, or call alancornett at kw.com or 859-327-1818. Now let's talk more about food. Let's talk a little bit about your role at uh, the Southern Foodways Alliance. You are managing director. Is that correct? Yes, sir. so uh, so tell me tell me what what that entails is that is that basically you you have to you're you're running everything while John T. edge is <laughs> Is off running around?
0: And... <laughs> <laughs> no, that is not the case. Um, oh, so okay. <laughs> really, really, we at the at the Southern Foodways Alliance, um, we are. Um, you know, when I say we, it's not a royal we. Um, John T. Edge, our founding director, um, Mary Beth Lassiter, um, who uh, along with me is uh, an associate director of the SFA. Um, we really run the SFA together, the three of us, um, we each bring very different sort of skills. Um, John T is an, uh, an incredible writer. He is, uh, a, um, deep and, um, engaging thinker about this region and he's an entrepreneur and, you know, it is his sort of entrepreneurial spirit that, sort of brought the SFA into existence. Um, Mary Beth Lassiter, who uh, John T. is from just kind of outside of uh, Macon, Georgia. Mary Beth Lasseter, who grew up in Valdosta, Georgia, um, has uh, a master's degree in Southern Studies uh, from the University of Mississippi um, and also has an MBA. And so she um, really oversees the money. Um, and the business side of the SFA. I am, uh, you probably saw this in my bio, I'm a graduate of Center College and of uh, Chase Law School at Northern Kentucky University. I grew up in Kentucky. And my my purview in this moment it, with the SFA is, really overseeing our staff who create our content, um, working on visioning and long range planning and kind of all of those things that, you know, all vibrant organizations have to do. Um, and yeah, and then I talk about the SFA a lot, about our work and and um, uh, and our people. So, um, and all of that, my ability to talk about, uh, the SFA, my ability to talk in public in general, is uh, owed almost entirely to uh, uh, Kentucky High School speech and debate tournaments um, and my uh, speech coach, Terry Ann Branson. So um, there's a lot of Kentucky that fuels the work of the SFA.
1: Well, I, I am glad to hear that you're bringing good geographical diversity <laughs> to, to the to the Georgians who are who are otherwise (laughs) dominating things over there so that's that that is refreshing I,
0: I will say I was very surprised um we've been my husband and I moved to Oxford in 2001 um so we've been here 18 years and I was surprised uh when I moved to Mississippi that as a Kentuckian I was not really seen as a southerner um by many folks here Um, I think that for, you know, Kentucky, I'm sorry, for um, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, maybe Louisiana, you know, probably South Carolina too, you know, that's seen as kind of the deep South and, um, you know, they don't really know quite what to make of the rest of us. So, um, yeah.
1: I I think that's right. I've, I spent a uh, some several years, a couple of different stints in Alabama, both in the Birmingham and in, in the Huntsville mm-hmm. area. And I will att- attest to. A similar view from from the folks in Alabama as to the, yeah. the folks in Mississippi. Yeah, so it's, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the upper the upper South isn't isn't really on yeah. their radar exactly uh, as far as that goes. But uh, but I'm I'm glad that we can help to uh, to set them right <laughs> on that
0: exactly. exactly. So
1: well let us let's back up then and, and talk a, a, about your your Kentucky background. You're a native of Middlesboro. Is that that's correct?
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, grew up in you Did you
1: go, did you go to Middlesbrough or Bell County?
0: Middlesbrough High School.
1: Go Yellow Jackets. Yellow Yellow Jacket. That's right. Now, now I am a Clay County native. And, uh, so I grew up, uh, with watching big basketball, uh, yeah. 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 And
0: by the time I got really sad the other day, when I realized that, you know that was the for me. Um, let's see. I was a senior in high school when Richie Farmer was in the eighth grade. So for me, no seventh grade, because he was already playing on the varsity. Um, right. You know. So I realized, kind of, in looking back now at uh, at Sweet Sixteen kind of statistics, that you know there there comes a point really quickly there. Um, <clears throat> in the mid, in the sort of the late nineties where Middlesbrough and Clay County, like that wasn't a thing anymore, but my goodness, was it a thing back in the day?
1: Uh, I, I was in the same high school class as Richie. And so I, I went through school with him. I was not, uh, on the same level of basketball player. That he was, <laughs> but, uh, we did have a lot of classes together, but, uh, now I remember, I remember Middlesbrough teams uh, just being really good. And the uh, Clay County had the good fortune of going to the Sweet 16 a number of years there in a row. But yeah. I always felt like that the rest of the state really didn't appreciate how good a lot of teams in the 13th region were oh, during yeah. that time. Yeah. Middlesbrough the 13th region and Knox Central. Yep, And Kaywood, uh, all of those, Uh, Cumberland had a a team that was absolutely incredible. And a lot of those teams didn't play much outside of the region or they might play 14th region teams and they didn't really get outside of the mountains much. And I I really think that a lot of those early to mid 1980s 13th region teams were undervalued statewide because they were just had some really incredible athletes.
0: Yes. And I will tell you, here's a, here's, uh, you know, deep tracks with Melissa Hall. Um, I, my, my job, uh, well, one, one thing that I very joyfully got to do, um, my, the whole of my I, guess I started my sophomore year in high school. Is I was the public address announcer um, at Fulton Gymnasium for all of the uh, the men's basketball games.
1: Oh, nice. So,
0: yeah, yeah, I know. So, um, yeah, I can, you know, this is not basketball Kentucky, it's eat Kentucky, but I can go on about the 13th region in that era for a while, but I won't.
1: Well, yeah. Uh- <laughs> the the our tagline at eat kentucky is that we uh, talk about kentucky its food and its culture so there you, you, go. There uh, you go you you can't get more uh, more kentucky culture than 1980s thirteenth region basketball as far as i <laughs> exactly
0: right that's exactly right <laughs> that's
1: uh,
0: i will also say this i am you know, I understand that we are facing down a global pandemic and I understand like all of the decisions that were made regarding, uh, the NCAA, uh, sports. Um, but I have to say, you know, more than being in my house, more than not seeing people more than not being able to go to work, the thing that I'm struggling with right now, and I'm hoping that after next weekend, it will abate somewhat. Is this this season of no basketball? I mean, oh,
1: I know, like it's, it's been awful. It's been so I like bad. These,
0: I like these three weeks as much as I like Christmas, and oh, I, <laughs> to, I, I understand
1: completely. <laughs> well, so my like, yeah. uh, my birthday is in mid March, and it comes usually right during the SEC tournament,
0: uh-huh. and
1: so so for me, like. The, the entirety of March is like a big birthday present for me. Of course. And, yeah. and, and, and I feel so robbed <laughs> this year. It was just all, <laughs> exactly. it was all taken away. And I was, I was exactly. gearing up for, uh, for Kentucky in the SEC tournament and then just ah, you know, yeah. then nothing. And yeah. it's, uh, you know, every, everybody uh, has, has things that they're, Uh, or have things that they're going to to lose uh, from this time period. But for basketball fans, it's been, it's been bad.
0: And let me say, um, as much as I love Oxford, Mississippi, as much as I'm happy about this as the place where we raised our children, all of those things are absolutely true, but there is really no one here who understands that. So um, that's, it's, you know the struggle is real. Oh, I, so. I,
1: I I get it. Again, again, I was in Alabama for a while, and uh, they exactly. uh, they don't really yeah. even acknowledge basketball season down there. That's just uh, that's just football off season as far as exactly. they're concerned. <laughs> in in a lot of those places. So so you were in Middlesboro and then ended up at Center College. So what took you to Center?
0: So my mother, uh, Billy Booth, uh, was uh, an aunt, an English teacher at Middlesbrough High School. And she taught for 32 years. And she was um, that teacher, Um, the one who, you know, changes your life and sets you on a path and who, you know, you remember things that she made you memorize and do and say and I can say all of that with confidence, not just because she was my mother, but because Middlesbrough High School was small enough um, that I had her twice. I had her for freshman honors English and junior honors English. So I can speak about her, not just because she's my mother, but also because she was my English teacher. And she had over the years, uh, you know, there were always, uh, you know, there was always a student with promise and a student who, um, you know, she was particularly interested to see where they would end up. And, uh, in the years leading up to me going to high school, um, two of her favorite students had gone to center. And I, you know, what I remember thinking is like, I, you know, that it, it sounded like, it sounded like the right place, um and so i um uh, I had always thought that I would probably go to the University of Kentucky, um but I fell for center hard in like the eighth or ninth grade, and really never looked anywhere else or thought about anywhere else, so
1: well, it's a beautiful campus,
0: yes, it is, and it's yeah. Now, I don't there, think there I would get
1: any yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I think you'd probably be all right but
0: yeah <laughs> I, I don't know anymore I mean it's it is uh you know i am uh I am certainly pleased with kind of its national profile and the way it's looked at and um uh you know what they've done what dr Riegelman has done with international studies and all, all of that. Um, but yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, I I'm I'm operating under no illusions that, uh, I could, (laughs) I could do that again. So.
1: Well, the, the best thing about being at center, of course, you've got Burke's Bakery just down the street. That's
0: exactly right. That's exactly right. (laughs) Um, you
1: can get those, you can get those great donuts. Yeah,
0: (laughs) exactly. So, um, yeah, so center, um, center was kind of, was kind of it for me. And um, then uh, after Center, I actually came back to Middlesbrough for a couple of years um, while I was deciding um, if I wanted to teach or um, if I wanted to go to law school. And uh, I was a substitute teacher and working in a law office um, during those years uh, while I made that decision. And uh, ultimately headed off to uh, law school at Chase and um, then to the public defender's office in Frankfurt um, after law school because that had been sort of my driving uh, force in going to law school is I knew that I wanted to do indigent criminal defense. Um, And I was there for three years. Um, that's the point when my husband finished law school. And then we, he had a series of, of one year jobs with federal judges. And so we started moving then and we landed, landed here in Oxford in 2001.
1: So during that time, did you have uh, a particular interest in food? Do you were you somebody who, who cooked particularly, or what was yes. what was your relationship uh, with it there?
0: I have always been a uh, I was always what I would call a competent home cook. Um, I had, I learned a great deal of what I know about cooking from, uh, my father's mother, my, um, my granny Booth, um, who was an extraordinary, um, and sort of innovative, uh, cook. And, um, when in that two year period, when I was home, uh, after center trying to decide what to do next, um, I kind of kicked that cooking up, uh, a notch. And one of the things that I remember very fondly is what I, what I used to do is mother had a subscription to Southern living. And so when a Southern living issue would come, I would endeavor to, in the course of the month before the ne- next issue came to make everything in the issue.
1: Oh, wow. And, that's yeah, ambitious.
0: So, so I would cook, you know, I would cook the, the Southern living kind of from front to back and that's, you know, as I think about it now, um, I used some graduation money that I got when I graduated from law school uh, to buy my first piece of Calphalon, And um, upon reflection, that was probably a sign <laughs> of what was to come, um, that I was interested in the good skillet um, that much. Um so, yeah, I mean, I had always um, i had always been interested in food when my husband and I met. We, you know, eating out and eating out uh, with purpose and adventure became a big part of our what we now call our single days. And by that, we mean the five years before we had our first child.
1: Right. Um, so that was a big exactly which is
0: you know it's like okay we weren't single we just weren't encumbered (laughs) with you know other people in our house um so we spent a lot of that time um eating and cooking uh wide widely so i um i had always had an interest in food and in fact it was that interest in food that led me to the southern foodways alliance um When 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 I left the public defender's office because we left the state of Kentucky, um, that's it was during that period of time when we were traveling around that um, uh, I had both of our children and I was home with them most days. And during that period of time, which turns out to be the last great day of the food magazine, um, I think at one point I was subscribing to like probably eight. Uh, food, food publications and um, that turns out to be the time when John T started writing so I was reading pieces that he was writing before I ever moved to Oxford and then when I came to Oxford and it took me about a year sort of to figure this out and I figured out that he was here and started to understand what the Southern Foodways Alliance was um, I managed to get myself a gig as a volunteer for the fall symposium and uh, was a, just a, you know, volunteer for three, three fall symposiums and uh, doing some other work for the SFA as they had need of it. And then was asked to uh, start doing some more regular Contract work with them and then ultimately, uh, to become the, the fourth employee of the SFA. So, you know, and all of that started in 2003. So, you know, now when people say, wow, you've been there for a long time, it it doesn't really feel that way. Um, because I've done a lot of different things for the organization. Um, but yeah, I've, I've I've been around the SFA for a long time, and I have seen it grow from uh, first you know first John T. and then John T. with my colleague Mary Beth Lassiter as uh, a part time graduate student employee um, to you know the the big and vibrant organization it is now.
1: Well, and clearly you've had a little bit to do with that being a big and vibrant organization <laughs> it is now so so yeah, that's I,
0: that's good I'm, I'm glad go.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm glad that Kentucky's had a had a hand in that oh yes when, when you were when you were growing up in Middlesboro what did the uh what did your Middlesboro uh table look like what what were your favorite foods that your grandmother uh, would fix uh
0: probably uh my uh uh my granny booth w- was like i said sort of known in the community as a really fine cook um I think the thing of hers uh that I well, two things that uh well maybe three that I learned to 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 make uh watching her and that she was best known for um she's was phenomenal at chicken and dumplings um my cousin Amanda and I. Uh, both learned how to make those from her and probably Amanda's probably better at it than I am, um, at getting close to kind of her, her exact kind of ratio of all of the things. Um, so it was the chicken and dumplings. Um, my, one of my favorite things that I still make for my children for their birthdays, even though they're not children anymore, they're young men, um, is a wet chocolate cake. Um, Mm. which is not particularly Eastern Kentucky. It just, it's just good.
1: Sounds good. (laughs)
0: And then, um, and then uh, she was also a really fine and talented biscuit maker. Um, Mm. She was also a really, um, I'm going to say aggressive canner. um, And would (laughs) can everything from things that probably should go in a jar to things that, you know, we probably could have done without like I I remember when, when summer she became obsessed with pickling crab apples, um, which I don't think, I don't (laughs) think anybody, I don't think anybody even opened those jars, but you know, so that, that, that was certainly part of my growing up. The other part of my growing up is that my, my mother's parents um, owned and operated a business that my aunt and uncle ultimately took over, um, they had a produce business. And so oh, okay. layman, layman produce, which sat at, uh, at, uh, sat on East Cumberland Avenue, um, across the street from the, the church I grew up in, um, and next door to my maternal grandparents' house, um, was a place that Initially uh, serviced all of the little mom and pop grocery stores um, that, you know, you could find on every sort of windy mountain road in every county in the state. Um, and ultimately, um, before my aunt and uncle closed that business a few years ago, um, uh, became a, uh, a retail um a primarily retail uh fresh produce operation. So between kind of with with kind of those places as bookends, um, you know, lots of vegetables, lots of um all of the uh men in uh my father's family and my grandfather and his friends were all fishermen. Um so when I was a little girl, a lot of fresh fish. Um, so Yeah, I mean, it's a very, like, as I look at it now, kind of an idealized uh, Appalachian larder at my fingertips. And I Mm -hmm. will say, honestly and openly, the hands down most exciting thing that ever happened to us in Middlesbrough was when first the Burger King and then the McDonald's opened. So I'm not even going to pretend that, you know, I was impressed by, you know, Fresh sliced tomatoes oh, and cream. No, corn. I I, I so. understand completely. When
1: I was a when I was a freshman at Clay County High School, uh, the McDonald's opened in in Manchester, and that and we were all oh, thrilled. Yeah. and yeah. Uh, I mean you that know, was that's that how was, you make
0: it, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. You we've we've got a McDonald's. We're on the map, you know. Right. Right.
0: <laughs> so, so you know, we had uh, a Wendy's, but that wasn't good enough. So I just you know I think that one of the One of the challenges is that, you know, you don't necessarily as a kid recognize that you're in the middle of a a rich and vibrant food culture. Um, You know, and I'm 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 a little chagrined about that.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I I I know exactly what you're talking about. I think about the the food that my grandmother, uh, my father's mother would would Put out on the table, and of course, I I enjoyed those meals, but not nearly as much as I should have, and not nearly right. as much as I feel like I would now if I could go back and exactly. and sit down at one of those. One of, and there and there were things that I you know that you would sort of as a kid turn your nose up at that I would right. love to get my hands on now, right? But uh, such is the foolishness of youth, I, I suppose. Right. But Appalachian food is uh, is starting to get some some recognition that it has not had in the past. And I think that that's right. a good thing.
0: Yes, I think so too. And I think, you know, we owe, a, we owe a debt to, um, there's, uh, oh my goodness, I'm going to forget his name. Um, we owe a debt. I'll, I'll start with people whose names I can remember. Um, Ronnie <laughs> Lundy who grew up in, oh, absolutely uh, uh, around the Corbin area, era, area, um, you know, we owe a great deal of um, uh, honor, kind of, at her feet for the focus on Appalachian foodways. And there are people, you know, there are people working right now. Um, Kristen Smith, who uh, has mm-hmm. maybe Wrigley's Tap Room in Corbin. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of Laura Smith, who uh, is an an activist, uh, sort of active in this world of Appalachian foodways. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that those folks are, um, you know, they're tapping into something, which is, you know, in this moment where everybody is looking for uh, authenticity uh, I think that, you know, there are lots of folks kind of paving the way toward that. So.
1: I I think so. And, uh, it, it, the, the lights being shined on it in a way, um, that, that it's not been in the past. And I, I, I'm pleased to see that, that the Eastern Kentucky and other areas of Appalachia, of course, Eastern Kentucky is 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 more on my radar but I'm I'm just glad to see uh, that that's that that's finally getting some attention.
0: Okay, so I finally remembered the name of the book. Um it is Smokehouse Ham, spoon bread and Scuppernogwan. Um mm-hmm. it's uh by a a fellow named Joseph Dabney. He's um he died um I want to say like 2 years ago. Um, and it, the, the book won a James Beard award. It's older, but you can still find it in paperback. Um, I think that book is kind of the best. If you, if you are, you know, I don't know, if you're living west of I-75 and you are <laughs> Appalachian, you know, you're Appalachian foodways curious and um, or, you know, even if you're living in Appalachia and you want to wrap your head around the, um, the great good news that, you know, you have a food culture and it's a rich and deep one, I think that book is the place to start.
1: West of I-75, or as we like to call it, Western Kentucky. Exactly. Right. Uh, <laughs> any, anything right. west of I-75. Right. Uh, so are you, uh, have you been able to uh, to introduce the, the folks in Mississippi to, uh, to Kentucky bourbon down there?
0: <laughs> Listen, Kentucky bourbon does not need a PR person. Um, I've been, um, <laughs> you know, the... Um the the growth of that industry is I think fascinating. It's you know, I, I was lucky I've been lucky enough to to meet some bourbon makers over the years and it's uh it's interesting. They're kind of the the folks who have been uh uh doing it say since oh I don't know the twentieth century are um uh I think they're interested in what's happening but a little skeptical and part of the reason that they're so skeptical is that you know as as I've heard one of them say on more than one occasion like what's your business plan because the thing about bourbon is you know whatever you know excitement you have about putting it in the barrel like it's got to sit there for a while
1: that's right. It's um, not. A, it's not. A, it's not like setting up a, a craft uh, brewery or something. You right. Can't, you can't just turn it around and, immediately.
0: Right. 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 So I think that, you know, I think that this is, uh, I think this is an exciting moment. I think that, you know, I think it's going to calm down, um, but I also think that at the end of it, um, I think that our um, Notion of what bourbon is and what it can be is going to be a little broader, you know. I mean, you don't you don't have to have sort of the makers mark and and Woodford as the uh, as the endpoints, uh, and I think that that will make things. Uh, you know, I think if if we end, I think we could end up in a world where. There is as much variety, maybe not as much, where there is the kind of variety both in finish and nose and flavor uh, in bourbon as there is maybe in wine. And, you know, I think that'd be an interesting world to be in.
1: We're certainly seeing a lot more. Uh, it different finishes and different experimentations i mean even the big mm-hmm. distilleries like buffalo traces are, are very active in experimenting with uh different mash bills different uh mm-hmm. barrel uh barrel types and finishes and uh <clears throat> different toasting levels and different woods i mean it has to be oak but uh yeah. different kinds of oak and so I think that there is a lot of interest in that, and I think that we we'll, we will see, and are already seeing uh, a yeah. lot more uh, uh, variety and diversity uh, in that. Yeah. And I even hear that there that there are people outside of Kentucky who make bourbon. I um, <laughs> I think those those are questionable um, rumors, but but uh, yeah. I've heard it. No
0: you know, and the, the, uh, I don't know if you've delved in at all to the world of, uh, the Japanese, uh, bourbons, um, but they're, you know, they're a world unto themselves. Um, and, sure. you know, I think I, you know, I, I I have to say, I mean, one of the things that I have kind of come to understand in these years of working with the Southern Foodways Alliance is that this whole level of, thought which i think is meant in a playful and sort of you know somewhat loving way but this this you know phrases like you know it's a southern thing you wouldn't understand those notions that the south is a thing a particular thing with a set of rules that southern food is a thing particular thing with a set of rules, you know, I find that to be so depressing and so limiting that, you know, that's not how I want to think about the South. And at the SFA, what I've had is the opportunity to understand that it's not, it's not how I have to think about this region. And it's not really how any of us should think about this region. I mean, if we want Southern food to become a museum piece um, that people visit and, you know, and say, Oh, you know, look at the, you know, look at the sheen on that dumpling. Um, You know, the, this cuisine could go in that direction, but that just seems so sad to me. Um, I think that what's much more exciting is to see the ways in which, People come to this region and claim this region and bring, you know, what they know and what they love to, you know, our to what Southerners would recognize as traditional foods and, you know, change them and make them better. Um, And I think that's the, you know, I think that's the most exciting thing about Southern food right now.
1: There's certainly room for all of that. And, and one thing that anybody will, will find out very quickly uh, in looking at Southern food one is that, that Southern food is already very varied. Just, you know, you, yes. you eat in, in Oxford, Mississippi right. or Middlesbrough, Kentucky, and those are very right. different cuisines in a lot of ways. But also that, that Southern cuisine has always changed. I mean, the right what if you look at uh, post World War II uh, changes in food and compare it to even late 19th century or early 21st century they're just they're right. very uh, they're very different uh mm-hmm. not and not in a not in a self-conscious way it's just the way food was available the ingredients were available and and lives dictated that food was made and and yeah. those things happen t- and tastes change and right and uh, um i know with the new show that vivian howard is doing uh yes it's she's deliberately investigating different southern cuisines built around uh, a single dish idea but finding out how that's expressed in uh, different cultural ways even within the south and it's it, uh-huh. you know, it's a very dynamic thing
0: well and i said to um my, one of my um uh good friends from college um grew up in hazard kentucky and we were texting back and forth a couple weeks ago about cornbread, and I was telling her that one of the things I was most interested in on a trip to San Francisco a few years ago—I was in not just San Francisco, but kind of all around and up into the Napa Valley a little bit—was the extent to which, because there are so many people in on uh, in and around San Francisco who are gluten-free. Um, the ways in which uh, San Francisco restaurants and bakers are using cornmeal in ways that are like surprising and exciting, but Mm -hmm. that people in the South wouldn't necessarily think about. Um, And so to see, you know, to see a place as far removed as, you know, as you know, we as Southerners would, would think about it as far removed from Southern food culture as could possibly be, um, taking sort of, you know, our beloved staple and this region's beloved staple and, you know, taking it to the next level and the next level after that, you know, I think that's exciting and I can't wait to see some of that come back down here.
1: Oh sure, and it yeah, yeah. And, it, and it will, and right. uh, and then see how chefs in the South themselves manipulate that and and do their own takes on it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Well, I appreciate you spending time with me today, and I know you've got important uh, SFA. <laughs> things to manage there in, in Oxford, but, uh, I hope that, uh, that this has also given you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the SFA to maybe some folks who weren't as familiar with it, uh, here in Kentucky.
0: Yeah, I hope so too, and if you, um, if what you hear here, um, causes you to be intrigued by the SFA, um, I would encourage you to visit us at southernfoodways.org. Um, we are, um, Everything that the s f a makes um, we share freely with the public. so in this moment where maybe you've run through all of your Netflix shows um and uh you wanna uh watch a film about uh a barbecue pitmaster in South Carolina or um a film about a uh mom and pop sort of grocery store gas station in Birmingham, Alabama um you know po- poke around southernfoodways.org watch our films um read uh read about our oral history narrators um listen to the podcast read things from gravy journal and if you like what you see there consider becoming a member um you know we do this work because we think this region has um, a broad and important story to tell through its food. And, um, you know, like all good storytellers, we need an audience. So, um, we hope that, um, we hope that, you know, that, that folks will check us out.
1: And I will put links to those things in show notes, as well as to the gravy podcast where people can find, you and john t edge introducing and concluding those uh, those episodes too Yep. Yeah. well thanks for being on and i uh, hope maybe we can run into you in, in kentucky maybe i'll see you at the mall in middlesboro or something uh, sometime
0: <laughs> yes we'll just meet up right there at the pennies um. <laughs> that's right <laughs> all right thank you alan
1: you can find links to the sfa's website and social media in show notes Please hit the subscribe button to the Eat Kentucky podcast to be notified of future episodes and please leave a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. Also, please tell a friend who might enjoy the Eat Kentucky podcast. You can follow my other explorations of Kentucky food on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I would love for you to visit the new Eat Kentucky Patreon at patreon.com eatkentucky where you can support the podcast and receive bonuses and previews. The eKentucky theme is by Art Mize. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at ekentucky at gmail.com. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I am a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. I would love to talk to you. Until next time, this is Alan Cornett.